brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. Excited to have Mickey Wynn joining us this episode to talk about his father, Ba Wynn. Uh, his story was covered by Mickey in the 2015 Oscar-nominated film, Last Days in Vietnam. I've been watching some of the footage they captured of his father, and it truly is a remarkable story. You guys are going to like it. Uh, before we get into all that, I wanted to mention that Big Mountain Heroes is now available on YouTube for free. If you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard so much about Big Mountain Heroes over the past year. And yeah, the guys decided now that it's won an award, which was really cool to give um, that footage to you for free, even if you're not a subscriber to the Spec Ops channel, which we hope you join. Uh, and it features a lot of guys you've heard on this podcast. Nick Betts, Isaiah Burkhart. Leo Jenkins. Leo Jenkins. Uh, Brandon Webb, of course. Nick Cahill and several other guys I'm probably missing. But it's it's very well done. Uh, great footage that these guys captured of them skiing uh, in the Alps. Well, really, several Alps, right? I think it's France, Italy. The Alps remember. cut through a few countries, yeah. But uh, I think they were in the Swiss Alps yeah. where they actually filmed it. Yeah, so check that out. Uh, Big Mountain Heroes. All you got to do is go on YouTube. I mean, I'll start promoting it as well on my Twitter uh, well, the Twitter, I should say, for SoftRep Radio, the Instagram for SoftRep Radio, and all that stuff. But if you go on YouTube, just look up Big Mountain Heroes, you'll see the full documentary. It's a short documentary, so we're not talking, um, you know, like a 90-minute film or anything. It's shorter, but it's very well done, and I think you guys will like it. Um, into some news I figured I would mention for you. This is really in your realm, but I just heard about it earlier today. Uh, the Punisher, which you've covered before, has been canceled by Netflix. Yeah, I'd say it had it coming. You know, John Bernthal was pretty good as Frank Castle. You know, he's a good actor, but the show itself was just honestly boring. Like, it, it bored me to tears in a lot of parts. I heard of a lot of complaints uh, from, you know, from, for example, Sean the Butcher, who's been on the show, about this season in particular. People liked the last season. I, I mean, I thought the first season was probably a little bit worse, if anything. You know, the thing is, like, there's this other show on Netflix because I so I get I guess a lot of this has to do with like Netflix having some blow up with Marvel that Netflix wants to do their own exclusive, like their own properties, their own IPs and so forth, um, rather than licensed characters from you know, Marvel or whoever. So anyway, I was watching this one with my wife yesterday. It's called like the the Umbrella Society or something like that. And it's sort of like a it's sort of the same theme as the X-Men. It's like these super powered kids who grew up in a big mansion and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it strikes me that that show has the same problem that the Punisher had, um, the same sh problem that Daredevil had, even though Daredevil was pr actually a pretty good show, is that like 
Bro, nobody wants to watch TV shows about superheroes being sad all the time. <laughs> like, just like moping about, feeling sorry for themselves. It's like you are literally a super empowered person. You have damn near or literally magical abilities to go out and affect change in the world. It's like no one wants to see you just like sitting around like all poopy face. Like, even Frank Castle, you know, the Punisher is a normal guy. But like the the character is not like some emo bro just like sitting around in hotel rooms getting drunk, feeling sorry. No, he's like going out and like taking the fight to criminals and like gunning down mob bosses. Like he's a very much like active, engaged participant in the world around him, kicking some ass. Um, you know, even this is even the same problem I have with some of the more uh, recent Batman comics that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, you know, we had the author, uh, Tom King on here for an interview and, and I, I do overall enjoy his work. I think he's a terrific writer, but like some of his Batman comics, more recent ones, especially it's just like Batman, like feeling sad. Do you think this is, cause I, I'm very outside this world, but do you think it's maybe to appeal to a more female demo? Cause you hear about Gamergate and this type of stuff where they feel like females are being discriminated against. I don't know that they're trying to appeal to a female demographic. I mean, I I, I sense a little bit of that in the comic book world sometimes that it's like trying to fit a round peg into a square (laughs) hole because like if you're trying to write the Punisher to appeal to a female demographic, I mean, you're just wasting your time. Like you're barking up the wrong tree there. But it's almost like the, the thing that I would compare it to. It's, you know, the Super Bowl, you already have the male demographic. So... When they have the halftime show, they have Adam Levine with his shirt off. Who does that appeal to? It doesn't appeal to us. I I don't know if it's like deliberately trying to appeal to a a female audience. I I think it's just there's there's a need to interject melodrama into these storylines. Um, they feel like that's what they have to do to like appeal to the audience to like ratchet up the drama as opposed to if it's, you know, Batman or the Punisher and like they understand who they are as a person and then they're just going out and executing their mission. I, I, I think that that could be seen by a lot of viewers as like kind of stale. Like you go from this mission and then to this mission yeah. and then there's some hiccups and the bad guy fights back and then you go on to this mission, you defeat him. So they feel the need to interject some of this melodrama, which I get, but at the same time, it's like, Dude, no one wants to sit there and, and watch an hour of Frank Castle fucking feeling sorry for himself. Like, no one wants to watch that. Yeah. Well, it, it apparently, uh, you're correct because it's being canceled from Netflix. I, I, I think it was going to be canceled anyway. Like, like um, Daredevil and some of those other shows did pretty well, and they got canceled too. And I don't think it's because of like the the ratings. I think it's because of whatever the the corporate agenda was between Netflix and uh, and Marvel Comics. It's funny because uh, before I recorded this, I, I had to get a sneak peek since it just came out today of the uh, Motley Crue, the Dirt movie that's going to be on Netflix. And I'm the biggest Motley Crue fan. If anybody was going to be disappointed by this trailer, it would be me because I'm very specific about. Yeah, like, for example, I, I liked Straight Outta Compton, but I, I was like, ah, oh, this was inaccurate, this is inaccurate. Uh, the trailer itself, I'm going to say, looked incredible. I, I really am excited for this movie. I'm definitely going to watch it. Uh, I love the book that it's based off of. I personally have met Nikki Six a couple times. Couldn't have been a cooler guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you ever met Tommy man. Lee? No, never met Tommy Lee. Just, just Nikki Six. 
I mean, my original story, I think I've told you, was when I got kicked out of Brides of Destruction yeah, yeah, you did, yeah. I Oh, yeah, I forget, yeah. That was him. Yeah, and he got me back into the show. I got kicked out for drinking because, you know, at the age of like, at the age of 17, I looked like I was 14. So, of course, they kicked me out. And he got me back in. And then the cool thing was I got to tell him that when I met him at Serious Years Later. And I was saying, like, if anybody talks shit about you online, I got your back, man. And he was like, yeah, that's awesome. And I got a picture with him. <laughs> that's so. super cool. Yeah, but because I've met from my time in radio a lot of rock stars. And, you know, a lot of guys will take a picture with you or sign something. But that's a whole nother level to get you back into a show for someone that you've never met that could do absolutely nothing for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was doing something to take care of the fans because he, you know, he probably likes you guys, you know, yeah. and respects you. So, I mean, that is really, that's a really cool story. Yeah, especially because he's had this reputation of a lot of people thinking he's a dick. And oh, really? I, yeah, I could tell you he's not. I mean, maybe at some other point when he was on drugs and all that, but he's definitely not <laughs> now. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. Uh, all right, well, before we get to Mickey, I actually usually read emails from you guys, the fans sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com, but this is an actually uh, an email from a recent guest, Mark Yablanka, uh, author of Vietnam Bao Chi, and he wrote us about another recent guest. So here it is. Uh, greetings, Ian and Jack. Just wanted to know, wanted you to know I listened to my, uh, Max Martini's episode last night and thoroughly enjoyed it. Through his brother, Chris, who's a friend I met when I was a member of the Military Writer Society of America a few years back, I got an invite to a screening of Sergeant Will Gardner. Great film with a powerful message that needs to get out there. So I was glad to hear you guys doing that. Max was kind enough to indulge a fan's request for a photo, which I included here. Photo of both of them. I'll try, probably put that up on uh, Instagram sometime during the week. Uh, just as he and co-star Michael Irby were back when he was starring in the unit, and came to the Joint Forces training base in La, uh, Los Alamitos, California, uh, on Soldier Appreciation Day. Best Mark, P.S., mailed him a copy of Vietnam Bao Chi in the days following the screening. So that's cool to hear two different um, recent guests connect other. with each other. Yeah, that was really cool. I didn't know any of that. Um, that was a cool email to get. Yeah, and, and by the way, for those who uh, checked out that episode or didn't, Sergeant Will Gardner is available now on Blu-ray on DVD. So now is the time to pick it up. I was listening to that excerpt you posted of the Max Martini (laughs) interview. That was that was really fucking funny. (laughs) Yeah, where you're saying if the uh, protagonist was a transgender, (laughs) if Will Gardner was transgender, (laughs) it would be a popular movie. Yeah. And and by the way, I I, you can only post a minute clip on Instagram, so I didn't want to take it out of context because I could already see someone. You know how people are these days, outraged by everything. The following. part of that interview he does say not that i have anything wrong with transgender people or there's anything wrong with them so he wasn't taking a cheap shot or anything he was like just that talking about what's currently trendy yeah um you know in hollywood or in the media and i mean it definitely is a trend uh, i mean i'm sure this is one of those comments that's going to come back to bite me but right <laughs> right now there there is a the media is looking for an aesthetic um, rather than a value, um, which is problematic for me. It, it, they're looking for the aesthetic of, you know, this is the empowered um, black homosexual female, like like capture all those things at once. Well, if you're talking about that, then the recent attack on the guy, attack in air quotes, of so the guy from the uh, power. Well, well, that's a, sort of a separate issue. I mean, that was really fucked up. But yes. it was, you know, the, but, the 
narrative was gay black man attacked by Trump right. supporter. Well, in the in the in the all sorts of different media from movies, video games, etc. They're trying to capture this uh, this aesthetic. I feel like uh, of the the person of color, the um, the female voices, and I, I think there's absolutely a role for that. But it's um, it, again, it's an aesthetic rather than a value. It's something that's trendy, something that they're commercializing and selling to us. And it comes across as just so inauthentic. Um, you know, like if you think back to the past, like uh, I, I realize this isn't some terrific, you know, art film, but still a wonderful movie, uh, Predator. And you remember Mac and Predator. I don't feel like you could have a African-American character like that in a movie today. Like that guy was so over the top, uh, but memorable, but really like memorable, uh, just a memorable role. Everyone remembers him in that movie. Um, now in, in these films, I mean, these Hollywood action films, they suck because they're all homogenous. They have to be homogenized. There's like so many blocks you have to tick, you know, and it, and it comes off like the, with these stereotypes, there's always, it's always the same cast, uh, and crew. It's like in your, in your team of like commandos or whoever it is, there's the big beefy black guy with the shaved head. There's the nerdy guy with the glasses who <laughs> runs the radios. And then the guy in charge is always, all, just about always, he is male, white, good-looking, and charismatic. Like, like, he's the movie star one. It's just like these tropes are so fucking boring. It's like, I don't know who goes to see movies nowadays. Like, I would rather go and see, like, a fucking Harry Potter movie <laughs> than go and see, like, an action movie. I'd rather go see a, a good science fiction movie than see these these action films are so horrible because they've just been destroyed by the, all this. Yeah. I mean, you just might, even though you are a former military guy, you might not be the demo for it because there are films that do relatively well. You know, that's, 13 Hours wasn't huge, but well, but a lot of people loved it. Well, yeah. And well, I'm, that's a different thing. I'm talking about like action, adventure, fictional films, like the ones that try to be realistic. I don't watch them at all. Yeah. Like uh, Lone Survivor. I haven't seen it. Did you watch 13 Hours? I or? did finally see it um, last summer um, when I went and visited my team sergeant, and he threw it on TV. Um, actually, his daughters wanted to watch it, which is really weird. So I ended up watching that with them. But I don't I don't have any desire to watch those kinds of movies. One thing I will say about it, and it's interesting because we have Chris coming on the podcast uh, next week. Uh, I believe, yeah, next week we have uh, Chris coming on. Yeah, we is, can ask him about the movie and what he oh, thought of it. Oh, we, I've, well, I, I've talked to him about it. I think he has on the podcast, but what I was going to say is that, and, and he's agreed, and I think a lot of his friends, the guy who played Chris did a great job. I could see that. Yeah. He's kind, it of, fun, like kind of funny goofing off when they're not working. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's very much him. A lot of people saw the film that know him and said, like, this guy did an excellent <laughs> job of capturing who you are. Well, you know, it's like when we, we interviewed Jocko Willink and I asked him about um, American Sniper, and he was kind of like, eh, well, it, it's a Hollywood film, you know. Yeah. They tried to capture something. They tried to do something good with the film, but it, I, I think what he was trying to say was like, look, man, it's a Hollywood film. It doesn't replicate what he experienced in Ramadi, yeah. you know, and, and how could it? But it's it? not going to. How could Like yeah. that guy on Twitter yeah, how, that how I was showing it? you the other day who was like, you know, I, I can't play war video games because in real war you can't play, press reset. Oh, and, shit. You sent me that. <laughs> I was laughing my ass off. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think anybody plays those games. And, you know, I, I know that there is a mental aspect that if you're, you know, one of these people who's addicted to video games, sitting in your house all day, killing people, you know, it does desensitize you 
But I think to the ra- rational person who maybe is a you know a gamer after they get home from work and this is what they enjoy doing, they, they don't feel like they're a warrior. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that came up again where, uh, in an interview with Liam Neeson where he was talking about that. He's like, I don't believe that people see these movies and it like motivates them to go kill people. Like that's nonsense. There's always going to be that, those people. You know, like just like the the guy who's obsessed with serial killers or something, well, people, as opposed to someone who enjoys a horror movie. People who are already predisposed towards violence uh, and becoming like violent criminals are going to gravitate towards that type of media. Like the Columbine shooters were like those kind of kids, but playing violent video games didn't make them go shoot up their school. No, you know, yeah. it, it's it's funny how like throughout history you see like. First, there's like Harley Davidson motorcycles, you know, that you get the motorcycle and you become a criminal, you know, <laughs> then it was comic books. Comic books were, were like the devil's work and they were polluting the brains of our children, corrupting them. There's Dungeons and Dragons is turning you into a Satanist. Satanist. Yeah. Um, and, and then video games were the big one when I was a kid, that the video games are corrupting America's youth. Um, and I, I guess today it's what social media is, what's destroying our kids, right? Do you, tablets do you rem- yeah do you remember um that chris rock bit from bigger and blacker where he was like i don't care about what the columbine kids were listening to he was like what was in hitler's cd case <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I tend to agree with that uh yeah who gives a shit really yeah. um I, un- unless you have anything else i think we're gonna get over to mickey um like i said i've been reading about him earlier today and and of course when we booked him and his father's story is incredible, and I'm looking forward to hearing it from him. Yes, I, I did not know this story at all. And his story, by the way, too, I should say, because I could remember certain things from when I was six years old, which he was, you know, fleeing the communists. It's got to be a crazy, crazy story. Really cool story, too. I'm, I'm excited to talk to him. For the first time on Soft Rep Radio, Mickey Wynn, Mickey's father, was Ba Wynn. His story was covered by Mickey in the 2015 Oscar-nominated film Last Days in Vietnam at the age of six years old in 1975 during the fall of Saigon. Uh, Mickey's father saved his family as they fled the communists in a Chinook CH-47 helicopter with his family. And we'll get into the whole story of, of going on board that Navy ship who saved your life and your family's life. But uh, before we get into the entire story itself, great to have you on. And, and thanks for reaching out to me and, and bringing this amazing story to our attention. Yeah, thank you for the, uh, the opportunity just to, to be on here and share with you uh, a story of my, uh, my family, my dad, uh, that uh, played a, uh, at least within the, the film, uh, Last Days in Vietnam, had a, a pretty dramatic scene in it, so that, that helped uh, the film stand out uh, a bit more in uh, 2015 uh, Oscar-nominated uh, role there. I uh, was actually totally unfamiliar with your story, and so I'm so glad that you reached out to us. Um, just reading an article about about this whole story is just really incredible. And I, I guess I'd like, if, you're, if you can, to start at the beginning and talk about, um, you know, your upbringing in South Vietnam and um, your father um, and, and all of the things that led up to, you know, the fall of Saigon. Yeah, so uh, this, the fall of Saigon, I'm sure a lot of your audience are aware in terms of the history of Vietnam was, but, but, but if there's some audience members that may not be familiar, this was uh the the final you know uh, the U.S. troops were uh, they officially left in seventy uh, seventy three mm-hmm. two years prior to the fall of Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam in uh, April of uh, 
the end of April, April 30th of 1975. And uh, during that time, I was about uh, six and a half. And uh, was the, uh, I'm old, the oldest uh, in my family, my dad, Bao Van Nguyen, was uh, during that time, he uh, elevated up to a lieutenant colonel. And uh, he flew the, uh, you know, the Chinook uh, CH-47. And uh, prior to that, uh, in the early 60s, he uh, had a chance to uh, join the, uh, the, uh, the Air Force and uh, actually flew to uh, Alabama and uh, another part of the U.S. for uh, helicopter flight training oh, wow. uh, in his early days. And so, yeah, so he was actually, he was actually in the States in the early 60s for, for training. So he picked up, uh, he picked up some, some English, which uh, later on, uh, became very handy during a, a, a very uh, dramatic part of uh, the escape of uh, you know, once the communists came down and, and actually took over the capital, took down the uh, the South uh, Vietnamese uh, flag. But prior prior that to that, he was what kind of operations was he flying for the South Vietnamese Air Force during the war? Oh, he flew a lot of different missions just uh, around the the area, the surrounding area there, in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, rations, uh, you know, flying, uh, military personnel, um, uh, flying tanks, uh, around flying, to, uh, just missions in terms of, uh, um, food ration to the, the various, uh, troops, uh, in the surrounding area there. So, uh, and he worked side by side with a lot of the, uh, American, um, uh, soldiers, uh, as well during that time frame. And uh, I mean, just to point out um, without, you know, this is really the first time I'm coming to your father's story, but the, the stories I have heard in the past about South Vietnamese pilots um, from a Vietnam vets, um, guys, the, the other airframe that they flew back in those days was the, uh, the King Bee, I believe. And um, the guys who served in MACV SOG and Special Forces just tell the most incredible stories about South Vietnamese pilots coming and pulling their bacon out of the fire, literally, time and time again. Just incredible, <laughs> incredible stories. We'll have to have um, John Mayer on. Um, actually, we may have asked, uh, interviewed him about this before, about how his team was a small six-man team in Laos. And the, uh, the NVA surrounded them, set the elephant grass on fire, and the flames were coming in on the team. They, they were each down to one magazine apiece um, when the King Bee swept in uh, with a South Vietnamese pilot flying and pulled all of them out of there. I mean, I, and I, I just say this just to point out that the, the heroism of these South Vietnamese helicopter pilots is sometimes overlooked um, by us Americans. Uh, I just want to take one yeah. second to point that out. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a, there's a lot of different uh, uh, stories, you know, of different uh, uh, military folks, uh, uh, pilots uh, of all sorts that uh, just, uh, if you listen to it, would you, you give you, you know, goosebumps. Yeah. Uh, so for sure. I mean, I appreciate you calling that out in terms of uh, South Vietnamese, uh, the bravery and the courage uh, of, of folks like my, my dad during that time frame. There's a lot of stories that my dad told that, uh, to this day, I'm so amazed that he's, you know, that he was uh, alive to survive through all of that and got shot down uh, many times. Uh, really? His helicopter. He flew, you know, he flew Chinooks for the most part towards the end, past few years, but he flew other types of uh, helicopters as well. And my mom uh, would share stories and my dad would share stories that he would, you know, uh, get shot down. And fortunately, the helicopter was was able to to at least maneuver its way down and hit the uh, 
hit the ground, and then he would, you know, run out and basically take off his his uniform to just, you know, because if he ran around look in his uniform, he would be an easy target for the embedded uh, VCs, uh, the vehicles around that area. And so, take you know, That's crash crazy. the helicopter, come down and take off his uniform and run around to go grab a. Uh, uh, you know, a taxi back to uh, a main city, and then get a ride back to to town there. So, because in that area, in in that area where he was serving, uh, there's a lot of embedded VC activities going on, and so uh, getting shot down you know, or, or getting hit uh, was part of uh, his daily duty that he had to had to deal with. And meanwhile, I, I was wondering if you could take a moment to talk about the rest of your family, you know, about your, your mother, your younger sisters, and, and kind of what home life was like, you know, before things really started to unravel. Yeah. So in the, in the, uh, from 74 to, for the mm, two or three years prior to uh, us leaving uh, Saigon, uh, we lived on a uh, military uh, Air Force base at Benoit, which is about uh, an hour away from Saigon. And uh, growing up there as a kid, just, you know, playing in the barracks, um, my mom, uh, while my dad did the daily missions, my mom uh, would be at home. Uh, we had a little convenience store that she'd set up and uh, sold, uh, uh, you know, like 7-Eleven uh, mm-hmm. items to uh, the, the local uh, folks on the Air Force base there. And I, I remember growing up as a kid playing around in the <laughs> in the, uh, <laughs> the the barracks there, pulling home cases of uh spent ammo or at times pulling home cases of, uh, of things that could blow up. And so uh, <laughs> this is part of my, my childhood growing up. It's just, uh, it felt normal. It scared the heck out of my mom when I would bring home you know, different uh, uh, military uh, items that I would find <laughs> laying around. Uh, but you know, it's just part of my normal childhood growing up. And, and But I can sense the fear in my mom, not knowing you know whether one day my dad would fly off and on a mission to, uh, uh, and but not know that to, uh, whether he would come back or not. It was just that that sort of uh, tense fear in living in that moment during that time frame. Uh, and uh, you know, every day watching TV or listening to the radio, uh, the, uh, the 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 communists coming down. You know, every day coming down closer and closer and closer. Um, and you know, not knowing what would happen if they did eventually uh, take over. Uh, South, uh, take over the capital. Uh, eventually, they did, but uh, just living in fear, of knowing that, and having a husband you know, fly off uh, on daily missions, and, and not knowing whether he's you know, shot down or not, was uh, a, a stress that my mom had to deal with uh, every day. On top of raising three little kids, right? I got uh, a brother, uh, my brother Mika, younger than me by a few years, and then of course uh, my uh, babysitter. I'm not my baby uh, sister who uh, in 75 was about the six, uh, uh, seven months old. So, um, yeah, that's, that's life how it was for me uh, how, prior to, uh, to how, how old were you in 75? Uh, by April, I was about six and a half. Six and a half. So I, I remember, yeah, I remember, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's some you know, dramatic parts of, of one's life makes you, you know, remember some yeah, of these things. Yeah. And so growing up around that time, I remember, just uh, playing around the barracks, and I remember I can smell. You know, I I know the smell of uh, of uh, aviation fuel. Um, flying with my dad a few times on the helicopter, uh, 
it's just a, a normal part of life that uh, you know is, is seared in my memory. I, I imagine as a as a six year old, you didn't have like a, a great political awareness of what was going on as far as a larger situation in South Vietnam. But were there some indicators you got, um, things that your mom said or maybe your dad said at the dinner table that made you realize that things aren't looking so hot? Uh. Well, yeah, later in my life, I learned more about it, sure. uh, the history of Vietnam. But uh, during that time frame, just uh, I, I didn't I didn't really think too much about the politics. Or mm-hmm. I just knew that the bad guys were coming <laughs> and that when we lived on the barracks, we can hear, you know, uh, during the last few months, uh, the the uh, the base there got shelled a couple of times. Uh, so it, uh, and we had a bunker in the back of our house built out, you know, in case the, you hear the siren going, you, you know, that you have to run back there and get uh, get into the bunker to to hide from that uh otherwise that's just a normal <laughs> a normal uh, occurrence in, in my young childhood otherwise all the politics and everything else behind it uh didn't 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 wasn't too much aware of that until uh until later on right, in my life right. did more research on it just uh just seeing just just uh, absorbing the uh, and being around and hearing my mom and dad talk about it was just enough to know that uh um you know whatever Whatever they did, I have to follow quickly, or else right. uh, it was not safe. You know, if I see my dad or my mom running into the bunker, then probably do the same. Yeah. Thing. Well, and, uh, there are times where we did go run into the bunkers. To, you know, the months leading up to the fall. So, tell us how how did this unfold? Then that things were going downhill. You knew the bad guys were coming. How how did this great escape begin for you and your family? Yeah. So. Uh, my dad, you know, uh, at this time, at this time frame, uh, March, early April time frame, knew knew exactly what was going on because he had the military intelligence and, uh, you know, talking with other uh, uh, military folks as well that uh, things were not going to turn out well, and that the communists started to every day creep more into the the, the main city there, Saigon there, and so he knew that. Uh, Things were going south, and what he did, uh, maybe in the last week or two, uh, prior to uh, April 29th, was uh, move my mom, you know, our immediate family, into the main city to be with uh, with uh, with grandma, his uh, his mother, in the main in the main capital, uh, because again, living on the barracks there, it, it got it got bombed pretty bad. Uh, the main airport, Tungfenyet Airport, was of course. Uh, uh, destroyed and uh, none of the planes, none of the large, you know, planes could fly in and out. Uh, and then, of course, the military base uh, got to hit as well. So that was not a, a safe uh, area to be. Hence, he moved us to uh, into the main city to be with uh, with my grandmother. And so he noted to my mom a few days prior, and and he had gone off to take care of uh, of, of business, you know, doing what he could, um, and at waiting to the very last minute to continue to listen to, to get orders from his uh, superiors. But towards the, the 27th, 28th of April timeframe, after waiting uh, for a long time for orders, uh, found out that his superiors also had, uh, you know, found a fleet basically wow. to find, uh, to save themselves and their own family. So your dad and just so, goes into uh, work one day and his, his superior officers have fled. <laughs> Yeah, by this time, wow. everybody knew that it's it's now time to you, you couldn't hold anymore. There's there's right. no way this is 
this was the, the dam bursting out and it's time to, it's time to evacuate. It's time to, it's time to run. So, um, by that time he, he told my mom, you know, if you, if you hear me, if, if I'm coming, then get the kids ready and we're, we're going to, we're going to hightail out of there. Cause he, he knew that if he gotten, uh, um, uh, stayed there too long, either gotten killed or gotten, uh, um, arrested by the, uh, the, the, the communists. And uh, of course, sent to uh, sent to uh, to jail or or executed well, when he so says this, at this mo- when he says when you hear me coming he's not talking about pulling into your driveway in a cadillac though well that that was one of the that was what my mom had thought maybe he'd come <laughs> back in a, in a in a car or something <laughs> and go to get us but what he did was uh, that morning the morning of april 29th uh i can hear i can hear the distinct oh, the night before it was was I remember very rough the night before I get, we were, uh, they were shelling all over the city. There are bombings all over the city. The things that you see, you know, in the news these days in uh, Iraq or mm-hmm. Syria and places like that. I experienced that firsthand as, as a child bombing in the city and we were ducking, uh, underneath the bed and just hearing, you know, bombs and explosions all around us. Uh, fortunately we were, we were okay. But the next day, the next day I can, I can hear the uh, the very familiar sound of of, uh, of a Chinook helicopter, and uh, it was coming it was coming closer and closer to to Grandma's house, and uh, so close that we ran out. All of, you know, my uh, my dad's brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, everybody would run out, and here comes this huge, huge Chinook helicopter. And uh, living here in the Seattle area, here and there's a, a, a uh, uh, Lewis uh, Joint Base uh, uh, McCord Air uh, uh, JBL further down in uh, the Tacoma area. Mm-hmm. We would drive down to go visit family down in Olympia and Portland, and you know, once in a while you hear the Chinook coming. So even from miles away, you, this this Chinook is huge. It's it's loud. It's it's um, you can hear it coming from miles away, and for this to come towards my grandma's house, we, we I I knew it was my dad. Uh, coming in because he hovered, <laughs> he hovered above the house, and uh, back then there was a there was a, a small little soccer field, play field area in front of my grandma's house, and he he dropped that thing, he landed it right on you know right in that air, just enough space to land the helicopter down, and uh, you know we see uh, we see the the back open up and his co-pilot comes running out, uh, you know waving waving the uh, waving us in. He says, "Hey, you're, you know, this is your husband's here. We're here to we're here to get you." And so immediately, my mom grabbed uh, just a, a small supply of diapers and just enough food. Uh, grabbed my uh, my sister, six month old, and myself and my brother ran to, uh, into the back of the the helicopter. And uh, my dad had noted that uh, uh, he had one of his other guys on uh, on both sides of the Chinook. You know, point uh, some some huge guns back at uh, at cops and and others just to keep them you know at bay because uh, there again there is a lot of embedded VCs around mm-hmm. there and who would you know who would know maybe that one of them could uh, could shoot uh, him the pilot or, or you know uh, take out the helicopter somehow and so they had to hold off uh, some of the military uh, uh, some of the police activities that were coming towards the Chinook while we that while they were waiting for us to climb on board. But eventually we, we got on, um, we got in and my mom turned around and asked, uh, you know, um, other aunts and uncles that were standing there going, hey, come on, you know, uh, come with us. 
this is an opportunity now to, to leave because that, as you can see in the film, a lot of people wanted to, to, to get out of there. Yeah. They tried to climb the embassy wall. We see a lot of people struggling to get into, to get a, a way out of that area. But my aunt and uncle said, you know what, you know, we, that's your husband, go with him. And uh, they, they stayed behind uh, and had to deal with the, with the, the situation after the communists came. It was, it was not a, a difficult life after they came. But we left, we got on board, and he quickly, you know, took off uh, as, as fast as he could, got the heck out of there. And uh, the thinking was to fly out of the city, get out of the hot zone, and uh, meet up with uh, a couple other uh, of his other guys that mm -hmm. uh, did, uh, they had the same idea, was grab a, a helicopter and uh, go save their own, you know, family. Because at this point, my dad had noted that this was, this was chaos. This was wild. Yeah. It was every man for himself. And this, oh, the Wild West analogy he used is you had your horse and uh, you, you did whatever you, you get could. get out of Dodge. Uh, get out of Dodge, exactly. Get the heck out of there. Because if you stayed back there, it would have been uh, bad news. And so uh, we got out of there and uh, uh, flew a few hours uh, south to get away from that hot zone, reconvene, and uh, figure out a plan uh, with his, uh, you know, with his other crew, uh, all reconvened in this one area with a bunch of other hel helicopters, and uh, kind of discuss what the next steps were. And so uh, the next steps were the think the thinking was to go and uh, buy uh, get uh, get uh, food, uh, bags of rice, uh, loaded up with other you know uh, supplies, uh, or fuel as well to. Uh, fly further, further south, just away from that area, maybe perhaps find a, find an island of some sort to just hide, right? Um, and so all of that, we loaded all the, uh, my, loaded all up, uh, the helicopter up with, the, with ration food and started to uh, head on out. Just if I can inter interrupt for one second, I, I just as a, yeah. as a kid, for you and your little sister's did you understand what was going on, or was this just a helicopter ride with Daddy? No, no, I, I, I it's you know, five or six years old by this one. I, I knew with all the bombings that you knew somebody something wanted was wrong. to hurt us. Yeah. Somebody wanted to hurt us. Right. And the it's a fight, it's a fight or flight situation, mm -hmm. right? It's just it's instinctual. You remember, you were a kid, you got beat up in school. You either you fight back or you run away. And so, at this case, you know, uh, knowing that uh, the enemy and whoever was coming wanted to hurt us, you know. Bombs are all over the place, and so the 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 uh, the need to fly away, the need to get out of there was instinctual, and uh, obviously following um, you know uh, following my mom and dad was uh, uh, direction and uh, was was critical at this point just to get out of there. So the next, so I, yeah, step, I, I realized the, the the danger, the imminent danger coming. The, so the next step is you're going to load up on supplies and try to find an island to go land on. It, yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, my dad said that, uh, his helicopter, his helicopter had, uh, I think roughly, uh, about 15 or 16 people, uh, the pilot, co-pilot gunner, uh, he had a, uh, a, a mechanic, uh, on board and one, one other person as well, one other crew member. And of course, uh, uh, immediate family, the crewman's, uh, his co-pilot's girlfriend, and um, you know other people as well. So in total, about about uh, seventeen people on his, you know, on his helicopter, uh, loaded up with ration, and then two other helicopters with uh, different crew members uh, as well. 
And so uh, they they head out, three helicopters head out. And at this point, uh, they follow my, my dad, hoping that maybe we just, you know, stick together as a, as a pack and try to find some uh, a safe uh, place, a safe refuge. And so as, as he was flying south, uh, he heard on, on the radio, uh, U.S. communication, U.S. Uh, chatter. And again, he knew just enough English years back to understand that there, and as well as he heard on, on the radio, there's, you know, U.S. military ships uh, out in the, in the Pacific. And so maybe the idea here was instead of, you know, flying to find an island, maybe the first thing to do is find a ship uh, large enough so that he could, uh, you know, possibly land on it and uh, find find safety. And so, sound like a great idea. Let's give it a shot, you know. And so he he headed out towards Pacific. The other two helicopter uh, had other uh, you know ideas, and so didn't didn't follow my dad. So it was just you know, and they took off further south. And so it's just my dad flying uh, now, basically. Uh, uh, with faith that uh, perhaps a ship out there would be uh, large enough to to land on. Out of curiosity, uh, before we get to landing on the the actual ship, the USS Kirk. Yeah. Do, do you have any idea what happened to those other two men and and who was with them? Well, yeah, yeah. Eventually, later on, uh, they fortunately they uh, they found they found their way to the U.S. I don't have the full exact details of how they got to the U.S., but I'm sure it's pretty much. A similar story in some ways. Sure. Um, but uh, they, you know, because my dad uh, in in the U.S. here, my dad uh, is part of the uh, South Vietnamese Air Force, sort of a club similar to many of the veteran clubs here in the U.S. And so, uh, once a year, they would meet in different cities to just you know sit and and and, uh, and do the military uh, uh, guy talk kind of yeah, thing. You know, meet sense. up and, and have reunions in different places. And so. Uh, in all of these different uh, cities that they, they would meet eventually, uh, everybody would share the story, and my dad would share this particular story of his. And so uh, there was only one person that, that did the stunt that was able to survive and, and tell about it. And so everybody knew of this story. But to answer your question, these two other guys, they ended up uh, uh, okay. And um, uh, eventually, you know, they rendezvoused with my dad uh, years later on uh, right. in the U.S., very cool. So, yeah. so getting back to the actual story itself, as you were kind of getting into, you know, your dad spotted what, you know, we now know as the USS Kirk, the Navy ship. Uh, exactly. So flying out there, he, he, uh, he had uh, enough. My dad was a smart guy. He, you know, in terms of planning and preparation, uh, the amount of risk that he was able to take, you know, the rule of, 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 of one thirds, right? It's, well, I'm, a, I'm, I like fishing and boating. And so the rule of one third is you have a one third of your fuel to get out, one third of your fuel to kind of put around there, another one third to get back, right? So mm-hmm. I, 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 I knew that, uh, that he, that he took a calculator risk to get out there to kind of look around and see, because he, I think he knew also the, the proximity of where these, these ships were located. And so he knew he had enough, and if he couldn't find something appropriate, or maybe they, they, they didn't allow him to, to do what he wanted to do, which was ask for help, then he had enough fuel to at least get back. But fortunately, as he, as he got out there, he kept going, 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 and nothing in sight for, for a while until off in the distance he spots a, a ship. And so he says, well, let's, let's, you know, let's give it a shot. Let's, let's approach them and see, uh, see what happens here. But as he 
he noted as he got closer to the ship, it, it was, wow, it's a little too small. It was a, <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit small. And, uh, and so what other options did he have at this point? He didn't really see anything, any other larger ships close by as an option. And so he approached it. He, he went as quick as he could towards it. Didn't want to waste any time or, or fuel, got, got close to it, but backed off on the throttle because he didn't want to look, he didn't want to look like, uh, you know, the, the bad guy coming. Right. Uh, he didn't want to look aggressive in any way. He wanted to look very safe. And so, you know, just, just, Hey, I'm, I'm coming and, um, don't shoot me. Right. <laughs> so he approaches it very slowly. And as he approaches it, he, my mom tells a story that she looked on the, on the, the, uh, port side looking down you know uh, the, uh, the 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 u.s's crewmen below were, were, were some guns pointed back at us and they were scared as well in terms of not knowing if if this chinook was you know had enemies on it or something and so but the way the way that he he handled the situation is hovering around this thing several times uh very slowly and just seeing all the commotion and, and the activities going down and what we saw what my dad's and others on the on the Chinook saw was the crewmen below trying to push smaller Huey uh, helicopters over the edge. Uh, and these little smaller helicopters had the same idea my dad had. They were South Vietnamese Air Force oh, pilots who, with their own family. Yeah, came out as well. They had the same idea. They came out and uh, were able to land on the back of this ship, which later on we found that was uh, the USS Kirk. But uh, they were able to land, and then families would run out, and uh, uh, the crew below would push the, heli- the the smaller Hueys over. But in this situation, still, my dad was it's way too big. Way, the helicopter's way too big. So what he was able to do was at least get communication, radio communication with the, the captain, uh, the radio uh, person on board the ship to kind of communicate what he wanted to do, uh, which was basically hover. The plan was to hover, you know, close to the ship and, uh, and jump over. And so that's what, that's what we did. The, uh, the captain of the USS Kirk, we found later on, uh, captain of uh, Paul Jacobs, a, just an outstanding man. So the stories that I share through, through my book and in what I, you know, I've talked about this in the film and in other, uh, uh, conferences or events that I've spoken at was the story of courage, my dad, heroism, uh, but also the story of compassion and the, the, the big, you know, the, the big heart of an individual like Captain Kirk to go ahead and, and um, allow uh, other smaller helicopters to come in, save family, save these uh, pilots, and then, you know, do what it took to, to help more. Save. At, the end of, at the end of all this whole mission, he's thousands of people that he saved. And so uh, Captain Paul Jake, I talk about him, a Amazing individual, amazing man. He's in his mid nineties, but still just sharp as a whistle. Well, when I saw but the, back then, I, I was just going to say when I saw the interview though, and, and we'll get right back into this of, of you speaking about this event. You see, you know, your sister jumping off with your mom, which is it's absolutely crazy to think about. I mean, it's a baby uh, jumping out of a helicopter yeah. onto a ship. Do you remember at the age of six years old jumping off the Chinook and onto the deck of the? Uh, USS Kirk, because I mean, uh, let alone being six years old, like I'm a 32 year old man, I, it would be hard to get me to jump <laughs> off a helicopter, even if I'm in fear of my life. I mean, it, it is a scary fucking thing. 
It, it is. It is. And again, you know, traumatic parts of one's life, no matter how, you know, even young traumatic things in your life, you, it, it stays in your head, right? Good or bad, it stays in your head. And so, uh, yes, absolutely. This is one of those things that uh, I remember very, very vividly. And that uh, finally, they, they, Captain Kirk, uh, Captain Kirk Lowe said, yeah, let's, let's do this, right? Let's do this. And so they kept the, the, you know, they kept the, the ship continuing to move at a, uh, at a steady pace, about roughly five five knots or whatever. Because if you if you shut the the ship off, it would start floating. You know, the current and and the wind, yeah, it would just float randomly. You can't control it. So the idea here was to keep that ship moving at a at a constant slow pace, so that it's it's you know, a, a, a constant vector trajectory. While my dad was able to go towards the back the the the, the fantail they call the stern of the the ship there and uh, got close, hovered close, 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 just get that sucker close. Because as you know, this ship, we found out later on, was a submarine destroyer meant to search, hunt, and destroy. And so it had all sorts of, uh, you know, very expensive, very valuable, very critical electronics and antennas and radars and all of this instrumentation on board. And so uh, the... The fear was if he got too close or if a swell or a wave, you know, would have caught in the ship or a, a wind or something, obviously would have moved the, the Chinook and banged the Chinook into the ship and a lot of damage and lives, uh, you know, at stake here. And so he hovered that thing, you know, just continued to maneuver it with the aid of a, a person, you know, standing on the deck there trying to, trying to guide him. So he kept an eye on that, while at the same time hovering this uh, this the Chinook backwards. He was flying, looking over his right. shoulders, hovering hovering this thing backwards, and trying to keep pace with with the ship, while at the same time getting close down, while not getting you know uh, enough access, enough height, so that um, his you know myself brother, you know, his wife, right. my mother, and and others on you know other uh, female you know. Uh, folks on board were able able to uh, to not jump too far and, and hurt ourselves, and so this is you know uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the crewmen said this is an amazing flying that uh, that he did just to keep this thing steady, you know, with the ship and, and at the right angle so that he didn't didn't uh, bang into the ship while well enough to just have us jump out. Uh, uh, so that's what we did. So how the, far uh, how far a drop down to the deck of the ship? Oh, uh, this was. The 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 uh, starboard side, you know, op- uh, the co-pilot opened up the starboard side, and uh, this is about uh, about fifteen feet, more than ten feet. Wow! Anywhere from you know, hovering this around fifteen feet in, in height, just to stay, just to stay within that that, and, that range. And, Anything higher would have been too dangerous. Anything low would have been just as dangerous. And you know? like so you have like Ian, that, that range. Like Ian said, I mean, as a, uh, if, I mean, I was in the army and did jump out of helicopters at various points in time. Um, and I was hesitant to do that as a special forces soldier. I mean, I can't imagine. And, and, as a, and with a parachute. And, and parachuting too. <laughs> um, but uh, as a six-year-old boy, I mean, you, you must have been terrified. I No, you know, it, it, it didn't, it was not so much of a terrifying experience, just uh, following everybody else who really? jumped before me. You know, there's uh, other, you know, other other ladies, other other guys, other mm-hmm. uh, you know, adults and everything else. And I just, I just followed suit. I looked over, and uh, there's folks below, four or five guys, the crewmen below, and incredible uh, heroes down there, risking their lives to stand underneath this, you know, behemoth <laughs> uh, chinook. 
Because what would happen if a swell came up or yeah. again, something my dad miscalculated, he could have squashed these guys. One of those guys we, I met years later on, Kent Chipman, again, an incredible individual, brave, uh, uh, total bravery and just standing underneath there, volunteering his own body to catch us. And so that's what I did. I, I looked over and, uh, and jumped like everybody else did. And uh, they, they caught us below. And then the last, uh, the last two people was, uh, was my, uh, my sister and my mother. And your little, so, your little uh, sister was, yeah, was six months. Uh, the crewmen, everybody jumped. Uh, go ahead. And your, your little sister was six months. She was an infant at the time, right? Yeah. She was just an infant. And, uh, Ken Shipman, some of the other crew, it's like, you know, it's my mom with her uh, left hand holding on to the, you know, the, the, the door there, the handle on the door there. And, and with the right arm, she dropped uh, my sister, uh, Mina, uh, like a basketball, they call it, you know, like catching a basketball. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it was difficult wow. for my mom to, 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 you know, what any, you know, what any, any uh, sane mother would yeah. do that, but uh, she had to, right? take that risk and uh, hope that uh, things turn out well. So they caught, they caught my sister and it was just my mom and dad on uh, the helicopter at this point. And so he continued to hover it and my mom, uh, you know, just looked over and said uh, goodbye to my dad. Uh, not knowing, you know, what would be the next step. Right. She, you know, she, she jumped and, uh, and everybody besides my dad, you know, got, got down. The only person that got hurt was uh, one of the gal, one of the girlfriends of the crew uh, of uh, my dad's crew sprained her ankle, but otherwise everybody was okay. And uh, they quickly ushered, you know, ushered our family uh, inside because they didn't want uh, kids or right. you know, folks running around the, the deck. Falling too off, dangerous. Yeah. And yeah. And the last thing that I see when I looked over my shoulder was uh, my dad hovering, hovering away from, from the ship, you know, and that was, that was the last uh, That's unreal. that I saw of him. And so they pushed us inside. My uh, my brother uh, uh, fainted, or my mom said was unconscious um, for some reason. I'm, I'm not. I forgot what the story behind that was. But uh, he, he yeah he passed away in uh, 2003, brain aneurysm. And so uh, it's you know it a tragic story. Oh, sorry to hear that. In my in my family here and there, but uh, but the uh, the medic tended to to uh, to us inside and. Um, you know, fetus and all that stuff in there. Uh, and so it wasn't until like maybe half hour or an hour later, somewhere around there that we finally saw my dad. Right. And so in that half hour time frame, uh, just an incredible, incredible story that, uh, my dad shared, uh, that, uh, through dinner, you know, dinner conversations when he, you know, he would see his other buddies and they would share war stories and all that stuff. And I would, as a boy growing up in the U.S. in the Seattle area here, listening to all these conversations. So I knew, I knew my dad's story, but it was only a story told through conversation. Uh, none of these pictures, none of these videos that you saw, that we saw on the film, appeared until nearly, uh, you know, nearly 40 years wow. or some, many years later on. Many years, in 2009 is when all of this, all of these pictures came about. Uh, so the story that my dad told uh, just was absolutely uh, amazing and is a, a family story for the most part. But uh, what had happened was um, he, he had a couple of options after everybody safely, he saved, you know, saved everybody first. He got a couple options. First option, you know, was to uh, fly back to land 
but made no sense to him. His family, his wife, his right. kids are on that ship. And there's no, no way in hell that he was going to go back because, number one, they would have killed him. Then he would have killed him, arrested him, or sent him to uh, the re-education camp. You know, we've seen stories of John McCain and, and others who've uh, – uh, not, not a good thing yeah, to be yeah. in those uh, re-education camps in any way. So uh, not an option. Option one was, was not, not going to be the option he wanted. Not, the option two was uh, to ex- extricate himself from this, this monster, this horse of his. And so that was the that was the only way that uh, that was the only option that made sense to him, and so he he shared you know uh, in this, during conversations dinner conversations that he he hovered he flew out about fifty fifty sixty yards away from the ship, and uh, at that point uh, the thinking was to try to ditch this thing right try to ditch this helicopter waterland uh, get waterland or try to ditch this sucker and so he hovered there he hovered uh, there uh, kept control of this thing and at the same time uh, unzipped his flak jacket uh, while trying to hold this thing steady unstrapped his boot laces un- get out of his boots <laughs> strip out of it which is not i mean i tried you know i've i've, I've tried wearing a um, this full body suit jacket it's hard getting in and out of that thing yeah. Just, you know, without, without any strip, without any, uh, you know, trying to keep this helicopter afloat and, and all of that. So, again, one of the, uh, one of the, Hugh Doyle, one of the crew member uh, on the ship was saying that just Houdini trying to get out of this, <laughs> this flat jacket and boot in this whole situation. But he did. He finally got, got all, you know, got his boots off and got down to his, uh, his shirt and his uh, boxer shorts because the thinking here was to, ditch it and get get into the water and it's you know we all know it's hard as heck to to try to swim with your shoes right. on or with your clothes on it's nearly impossible to to get down there but uh once he got once he stripped down to his shirts and his shorts there uh he uh, he kicked open the emergency uh, port side uh left side door it's just enough to a little hatch just enough for him to uh you know hover close enough to the water and uh get and basically prepare to uh, dive to his uh, to his left, while at the same time using his right foot to uh, move that cyclic you know, the joystick and push that joystick so that it would lean the helicopter to the right. That was the theory. That was the hope. And mind you, they 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 only what my dad told me is they he learned this sort of academically in terms of ditching a chinook. You know, you don't actually do training for this. You know, there's no actual, right. you don't, you know, you can train, you can train to jump parachutes, train hundreds of times to jump parachutes, but you don't really, you, you only learn this just uh, from an education standpoint, how to, you on, know, on paper, yeah. The, the idea of, yeah, on paper, you don't really actually practice it. But in this case, he had to actually do it, you know, <sighs> try to execute this maneuver the very first time. And uh, that's what he did. He, he, Push that stick. He said he pushed that son of a bitch hard. You know, move that sucker because the Chinook helicopter was fifteen thousand horse. The the model back then was about fifteen thousand horsepower. It was tremendous amount of power that the that he had to quickly subdue in a a very short amount of time. Uh, And so, kicked that 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 joystick to the to the right and leaped as far as he could to to his left. And he dove in the water, and all that he could, you know, say was just immense am- amount of, of of energy and noise and commotion. Just mm-hmm. you know, right behind him, he tried to dive into the water at least three or four times. 
but the salt water was was uh, salt water is extremely buoyant, and so I kept pushing him up several times. But after the third or the fourth time, he was able to you know to get down, and uh, we see in the pictures of just the massive explosion behind him, shrapnels of fiberglass all over the place. Uh, who's to say that uh, you know during this time frame? You know, one of these fiberglass pieces or something could have right. come down on his head, or the uh, the the physics of the, the the helicopter could have you know flipped back on his on his head or something. All of these different things could have could have happened, but he finally was able to get down, and then uh, the helicopter behind him was able to settle down, and he he popped back up. And he felt just a tremendous, tremendous relief. That that stress and that anxiety for for weeks and weeks and days and days on end, culminating to that point right in his life, and uh, seeing seeing a, a small little a bolt coming out <laughs> to pick him up, he just felt just like this massive, massive relief. That finally, you know, all of this moments of running away from from the enemy and. And uh, doing all of this, and who's to say that you know he gotten would have gotten shot during the back in the in the city, or yeah. uh, you know not enough fuel, or all these different things that have just you know come and and changed plans, right? Uh, the universe, call it what you will, uh, just everything was clicking perfectly right. The captain and the compassion of the crew to to risk their life as well to help us out and, and uh, to provide assistance and support. Just everything had to click, you know, courage and compassion combined together to, to at that one moment. And they picked him up. He was all wet. Uh, we, a picture of him in this little boat um, coming towards the, the, you know, being, being rescued. And so got on, on, on board and uh, just felt really relieved. Uh, first thing my boss said, he, he said, he was sharing, the first thing he did was got on the, on the, on the ship and, uh, instead of asking, you know, where, you know, where's my family? He said, well, I, I need a cigarette. He was, that, <laughs> he was that wound up. He was that wound up, right? You just, you just need to just give me five minutes to calm down here. Give me a cigarette. And then I can finally, you know, I can finally uh, say hi to, to the family. But uh, soaking wet and all, cigarette in hand, he was like finally relieved. I read uh, that he was thanking, rescued. Thanking everyone around him. I, I read that he was rescued wearing his red boxer shorts that your mother had sewn for him. Yeah, yeah. So she, you know, she she saves a lot of stuff, and that was one of the things that she uh, she saved. Is just, uh, you know, they said in the film that he had gold. We, he, he's a military guy; didn't have any gold. Uh, perhaps other others that uh, had that that resource, um, fortunate to bring gold uh, with him. Uh, but not not our family. We we came uh, just a military family, and my mom had a convenience store. So uh, the only thing that he had was just. And the only thing we started in, in the U.S. was just a pair of shorts and a shirt. Pair of boxer shorts. And that's how, that's how, yeah, that's how we started. And she saved that. She <laughs> saved that through the years. And so uh, in, uh, in when he, re- so long story short, um, uh, well, there's so many parts of the story afterwards, but uh, we were only, we were on that ship for only about mm, one day, less than 24 hours. And so, uh, we were whisked off with other families, other Vietnamese families, uh, onto a cargo ship and uh, went to uh, Guam, Wake, uh, Hawaii, and then eventually to Camp Pendleton. Mm-hmm. And so we lost lost contact. Didn't you know they 
you couldn't ask, Hey, can I friend you? Or can I get your, your phone number right, or whatever? Right. right. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. It was just, it didn't, so lost, it didn't lost track of the name of the ship, lost track of the name of the captain, all of that. Just, you know, it was just chaos at that time, wondering what's going to happen next. And so, uh, didn't get a chance to write down any, any information. Um, so were you guys able you know, to file for, um, political asylum? Were you, were you considered yeah. refugees? Yeah, it was, a, it was a refugee status, and um, uh, in 1975, a, a lot of there's about four or five different refugee bases scattered all across the U.S. We happened to ended up end up in Camp uh, Pendleton, uh, in uh, the San Diego area, uh, the Marine base there, and we were there for uh, a couple months until a, a church in uh, Seattle, a church in the Bellevue, Washington, here across the Cross Lutheran Church, uh, sponsored our our family. So yeah, and I was watching. Came, uh, came up here. I, I was watching the video of of you basically growing up with these people and and them adding value to your life and basically rescuing you and you guys apparently adding value to their life and so it, it actually just makes me wonder. And people often we've gotten emails before about you know you guys don't cover spirituality or anything, but but in this case I would wonder you surviving, your dad surviving. Unfortunately, the you know, passing of your brother years later. But as you said, everything basically going according to plan, then being rescued by this Christian family. Do you believe this is some sort of divine intervention or, or that it was just that your dad had an amazing plan and things worked out? Ah, I wish that was the case. Sometimes in life, you know, you can plan all you want, but uh, what, what they say, plan all you want, and some, if you get punched, what's the Mike Tyson quote, Yeah, right? yeah, everybody has um, a plan until they get punched <laughs> in the face. <laughs> yeah, until you get, until, well, in this case, it, you know, the the, um, the the plan was, you know, for his life to grow up in a, in a peaceful country, you know, go to school and get married and have, you know, all of that. But uh, that was not the that was not the story for uh, for Vietnam and, and the, the turmoils and the, the situation that it went through, and so uh, uh, in life, you know, life throws you all sorts of curveballs, and, and you just you just gotta uh, do the best you can to uh, uh, handle and, and think through and 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 um, be calm, um, uh, you know, maneuver your way through that that challenge, and that's what he did. Uh, uh, throughout his life. And so he, you know, my dad to me is, uh, is, is my hero. And, uh, throughout, throughout this whole experience, uh, in terms of working, in terms of uh, reuniting and, and meeting up with Captain, uh, Paul Jacobs again and Kent Shippen and the other crew members at a reunion, you know, many, many years later, uh, just to thank them, it was, uh, you know, all of this had to come into play. Yeah, the universe at work. I I was looking at that video of, and and that was from 2010, being reunited with the members of that ship. And uh, I'll try to post it because the the really, you know, interesting thing about that video that you described there is that at that point your father had dementia, yet you know he stands up and and salutes those men. Yeah, exactly. So let me back up just the story just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, In 2000, yeah. So settle America. Long story short. Uh, he went back, you know, started back in the very beginning again, again, literally started with nothing. The church helped us out. They got us an apartment a few years later, worked hard, saved, lived that American dream. Uh, eventually, uh, got into, uh, uh, electronics in the Seattle area, worked at Boeing and retired from Boeing. So in 2001, he retired from Boeing. This is not knowing about the Kirk, not knowing about the captain too. So, uh, when he retired from Boeing in 2001, I said, Hey mom, I want to do something special for dad instead of getting him a a tie or a watch or a dinner for his retirement. Do you still have that shirt and that short you kept for him? So she says, yeah, I still kept it. 
so then I, I, I put together the, the box. I think there's some pictures of it. Um, well, there's pictures on, on my website. Yeah. But I, 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 I put this, you know, keepsake box together and all the medals that my grandma saved and everything else. And I, I made him this, this box. And, uh, it was, it was so funny that, um, a few years later, the, the U S Navy, uh, uh, Mr. Jan Herman wanted to do a documentary on this, on the ship, the USS Kirk, again, uh, a, a submarine destroyer meant to search, hunt, and destroy. But in the end, it became a humanitarian story, saving uh, many, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lives, thousands of lives uh, on the ship. And uh, one of the dramatic uh, uh, events that occurred during this time frame was uh, this Chinook pilot. And they wanted to find this Chinook pilot who... Uh, so that it would fill out, you know, this the mm-hmm. story that uh, Jan Herman in the U.S. Navy wanted to to produce as a documentary on the ship, and so they put out uh, they put out an email, and uh, because of my mom and dad's involvement with the uh, South Vietnamese Air Force uh, clubs all across, you know, different cities, Virginia, Houston, L.A., San Jose, all those places, uh, many of the other Vietnamese pilots. Um, I knew about my dad, his story. There's only one person that did this and able to survive and tell about it. And so Jan Herman puts out this email and, and also produced a, a YouTube trying to find this, this pilot. And uh, eventually the email was sent out to the uh, Virginia area, uh, Washington, D.C. area, and it got forwarded on to a few other people and then forwarded on to my mom. She gets the email. Her English isn't very, very good. So she forwards it to me. I'm sitting at work. This was in 2009. I'm sitting at work. <laughs> And I get this email, and it says, hey, uh, email was from the U.S. Navy, and we're looking for this pilot. And so I said, hey, and I read the email, and I said, you know what? Uh, and I confirmed with my mom again back then, you know, when, what time, when, what day and what time did Dad ditch the Chinook? Because, again, <laughs> this is all the story. And so she says, well, April 29th, this is, you know, during the afternoon time frame. And so I said, ah, okay. So I went, I, I ran home, I took a picture of the box, right? I took a picture box, and back then my dad was my dad was early stage of Alzheimer's at this time, and I had him hold the box, and I took a picture of the box because in the picture of the box was a, a picture of the shorts and the shirt, and so I replied back to, to Mr. Jan Herman and I said, hey, hey, if you're looking for this pilot from Ditchit on this time frame, this time frame, perhaps that's my dad, and so I hit send, not knowing that you know what what would come out of it, but no later than just a few hours later, Mr. Jan Herman sends back. Uh, hey, yeah, here's some pictures. Take a look. And holy cow, holy cow, wow. everything that my dad shared at the dinner tables, here are some pictures <laughs> that, wow. uh, that got, my dad was in line. He wasn't bullshitting. <laughs> he actually did this because I didn't see it. I didn't see it when I was a kid. I was, you know, we were inside. Right. And it was only told through stories. And so, holy crap, I got all these pictures and everything. And so uh, the, the person that took the picture was Mr. Campiano, uh, one of the uh, crew members. He had a, a picture. He had a, uh, he had a, a camera and a, and a video and everything. He captured all of this. And so uh, they, the, the, the Navy came out and uh, interviewed uh, uh, myself and my mom. My dad, again, back then wasn't able to, to talk. He had Alzheimer's, or Alzheimer's, and it got worse as you know time moved on. But... Uh, yeah, this was 2010, year, uh, 2009 when they flew out, 2009 when, I, when all of these pictures came about. A year later, they, uh, they finished, uh, the Navy did their own uh, documentary called The Lucky Shoe. And so uh, we got a chance to fly out. 
and uh, rolled my dad into the wheelchair of this uh, USS Kirk reunion. And the first person that, that came up to us in his full you know, Navy fatigue uh, was a man by the name of Kirk, uh, Kent Tripman. And he reaches out and he says, hi, I'm Kent Tripman. I'm the guy that caught you. And oh, wow. my God, my heart just went. I just, it's just, oh, wow. He was um, the one that caught your baby sister too, right? Yeah, exactly. And myself, and my, I was there, my sisters, my mom, and my, my dad, my brother passed away uh, years prior to that. But the four of us uh, came out and, and um, brought my, my two kids uh, to experience all this as well. But uh, he came up and he introduced us and said, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy that caught you. And it's like, holy cow, what? Just the full circle, the absolute yeah. full circle. Because for many, many years, we didn't know him. We didn't know the captain. We didn't know all of that. And so they uh, they they showed the, uh, the the documentary from the Navy. And it, it, it was focused around the ship itself, mainly around the, the USS Kirk. And towards the end, they uh, they invited, uh, you know, they called up my dad and, uh, they invited uh, our family to come up, and I pushed my dad uh, in his wheelchair up. And uh, there's, you know, throughout the prior to pushing him up, he was we were in the back because he, he his again Alzheimer's dementia. He couldn't he couldn't control his his uh, himself. Uh, he just made noises, and uh, just in, uh, if anybody who who has parents or knows somebody who has uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Um, they're not able to talk or, or he was just making odd noises. And so, uh, not all there, you know, up, up in the head, we pushed him up on stage and uh, they gave him, um, an honorary USS Kirk, uh, a medal and, uh, just amazing to shake the hand and say myself to say, uh, uh thank you to the captain on behalf of my father and, and my family. And as the crowd started to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, recognized my dad clap and uh we i i saw my dad start to in his wheelchair start to kind of wiggle and move around and i'm standing close to him trying to just say hey dad you know just stay calm stay down uh but he persisted he he wanted to you know move he was some kind of kind of agitated and so he finally was able to push himself up out of the wheelchair as the crowd was clapping and the only thing that he, he couldn't speak a word, you know, again, just not all there, but just enough, just enough consciousness there to stand up and lift his right arm up and, and saluted, you know, the captain and the crew. And um, that was all that he could say just to say thank you, you know, and that, to me, that was just so emotional to me and, um, and, my, and my mom as well to see that. And so uh, what we, we, although at times in the past few years before his death, we, we were questioning whether he was all, you know, mentally conscious or there or not. But I swear to God, I, I knew my dad was there just enough to say thank you. And, and you know, and, and that was it. That was all that he can do. You know what, what it was a really, very emotional time at that point. What really strikes me about this story, I mean, really what this, ins- this entire story is about, I mean, from my perspective, just listening to you tell it, is really it's about the love that your father had for all you guys and just the incredible things that there was nothing he wasn't going to do to get you out of there and, and, and make sure that you were safe and that you were free and, and just the, the incredible risks he took, but, but he did it for his family. I mean, it's very, that's very clear. Oh, awfully clear. The instinctual, you know, just being a, a father and a, 
role model and, and uh, leading through example, all of that. I just, if I can be half the man that he is yeah. in my own life, that would just be fantastic. But he set a very, very high bar in, in family first, <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of all of that and uh, doing, doing the right thing. And that message of doing the right thing really resonated in the story that uh, a few years later on uh, that Rory Kennedy uh, produced in terms of uh, the last days in Vietnam. It was just uh, doing the right thing, right? That we see in, in, in the last days in Vietnam, a lot of people in the embassy, uh, just, um, you know, all this chaos, this commotion going down and, and the, the orders from Washington, D.C. to do this, do this and that. But they said, you know what, screw that. We're going to do the best we can to, to save as many people as we, as, as we can, right? And, and defy all of these uh, rules and yeah. um, things that we're supposed to follow. And, and, and use your best judgment to do the right thing to, to, to help others, help your family, help, your, help the people around you if you can. And so that, that totally resonates. That you can't, uh, you can't completely thing. subvert or, or submit yourself to a, a mindless bureaucracy, that there has to be some sort of human decision-making process there. And, and that's why I really love that story about, uh, about Chippy, Kent Chapman, you know, running, running out there and uh, catching your baby sister. I mean, it's just a, a incredible yeah. story. And I, how did how did uh, things turn out? I mean, um, where where are all of you? Where is the family today? Uh, so uh, it's, uh, still in the area that we live in uh, Redmond, Washington here, and uh, uh, everyone's everyone's great. Um, you know, it was uh, my mom. My mom is the other hero in, in my life, and. Mm-hmm. Just for her to support my dad through the the wartime activities and, and raising all of us up and you know doing all that she can to to provide and, and help the family as well and then during the last years of my dad's life being the sole caretaker and again as anybody who has a a, a person with dementia or all, Alzheimer's in their life they know how difficult it is to take care of of, of that to, yeah. um, you know to care for that Very person. Much. And so my mom, um, just to the very end, until my dad passed away, took care of him, uh, you know, showered him, bathrooms, all those kinds of things. Just amazing, amazing um, wife, a mother, uh, individual in her own right. This just strikes me as like such the quintessential American dream story. It's the kind of story that, or, or the kind of thing that as American citizens, you know, people like myself who are born here, we tend to take for granted way too often. And there was your family that fought for it tooth and nail. Um, but, but it, I mean, it did come true in the end. Yeah. It, it, fortunately, uh, my family story was, was positive. Everything, you know, went, went well. There are so many thousands and thousands of other uh, yeah. refugee stories during the Vietnam time frame that uh, did not end up very well. And so I'm, I'm very humble and very lucky that our family's story came out, uh, we, turned out the way it did. But uh, we talked you know, to at uh, the same time. Yeah. We, we talked to Jim Morris about one of those stories about our, our uh, Montagnard allies in Vietnam, and so many of them were left behind. And uh, and Jim and some of his compatriots were able to get some of them back to the United States, but so many of them, you know, were wiped out. Yeah, there's exactly a, a lot of stories like that in terms of. Uh, uh, just uh, the things that humans do to each other, yeah. unbelievable at times. And, and the things that, you know, humans do with each other help is also very inspiring. So both ends of the spectrums when it comes to war. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's uh, you know, if you, you served, if you've gone through it, if you're a part of it, if you're a refugee, a war is not, not something that uh, you would want to wish on, on anybody. Yeah. 
uh, whether you served it or whether you've gone through it or, you know, survived it at that point. So, yeah. Um, one of the things, and maybe this is one of those, those things that I, uh, I wanted to kind of share in terms of war itself. Please. I don't know how you guys, how, go ahead. No, please go. Uh, uh, the, so in, in the past few years, as, as all of this, you know, emerged and learning more about all this and, and war itself, I got the chance to, to, to circle back and, 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 and do some, do some of my own homework and in crafting together the, the, the book that I wrote and I entitled it, my father, the badass, obviously it's, it's around, uh, you know, th- this situation and just want being one badass mofo doing whatever you can to, to survive, save yourself and save, you know, save the family, do the right thing. But in, in the whole uh, aspect of that and learning about the war itself, it really opened my eyes up in terms of, you know, uh, the reason for Vietnam War and, the, and the, the things that we see today, you know, the word Venezuela comes into it. And in the media these days, is this going to be, a, you know, Venezuela? Is this going to be another another Vietnam and everything else around it? But in terms of researching all this and, and call me a conspiracy person, if you will, but uh, the war itself dragged on for, for more than 20 years. And uh, as we all know, you know, war is, is very profitable. Yeah. War is very profitable. And uh, uh, three million South Vietnamese, you know, uh, Cambodians died in this war, and uh, fifty-six thousand uh, Americans died in this war. And the the, the question that I asked, and the, and and the research that I went into in terms of poking around this area was, did, did that have, you know, did that needed to be the case where? that the war needed to be stretched out for that long and that many lives on both sides have to die. And, and I came out of it thinking, no, it, it didn't have to, it didn't, it didn't have to end that way. Uh, because, uh, you know, and again, this whole notion of, um, you know, for every bullet sold, for every gun sold, for every plane sold, somebody, somebody is, um, profiting out of this. And, um, I just, uh, I just, there, there are too many things, that I that I researched that uh, um, pointed to that fact. Well, that's what we were talking about with uh, Fred Galvin the other day about General Smedley Butler, uh, Marine General, who uh, you know, or I, probably like in the 1920s or something. He wrote that book, War Is a Racket, um, yeah. talking talking about ver- that very subject. And, um, and I was actually having a conversation with someone just this morning about, you know, there's that incredible story when Robert McNamara, who's the secretary of defense during Vietnam, after the war, he went to Vietnam and he met with one of the Vietnamese generals, one of the communist generals. And, uh, you know, he told McNamara, you guys were trying to turn Vietnam into a, into, into an American colony. And he was like, no, no, that's, Mm. that's absolutely not what we were trying to accomplish there. And he said they almost got into a fist fight. But from the hmm. Vietnamese perspective, there were how many American troops stationed in Vietnam at one point? Like several million. So, I mean, yeah. it, it, you can see how from their perspective, they're like, well, if this isn't colonialism, then what is? You know, so, hmm. uh, yeah, it, it is. There's so many mistakes made in, in retrospect. Um, and you know, the Vietnamese, as you know, you know, better than I do. I mean, they were fighting the Japanese before the French and, and then after the French, right. they were fighting the, the United States. And, and for them, it was, a, it was Vietnamese nationalism. Um, yeah. and it's, it's just a tragedy what happened in Southeast Asia. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, 
it's been a country that's been uh, attacked. It was it's got a lot of resources, you know, close to the beach side, uh, close to the Pacific Ocean. So it's a highly desired territory and a lot of natural resources, um, you know, within the country itself. But uh, uh, yeah, just uh, you know, the whole experience in in, in working and giving the opportunity to, to share a positive message in light of all the 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 craziness of, uh, of, of, you know, the events happening in Vietnam, just the, the opportunity to share the story uh, with others and, um, you know, folks, your, your audience as well has been um, a great opportunity. Just, you know, there's good people out there, people with uh, everyday, just normal people, but, uh, uh, you know, going through different, uh, if, different things in their life, big challenges, small challenges, but at the end of the day, we've got to continue to, to press through and, um, you know, uh, find the courage to, to, you know, get through our, our obstacles and our you know, personal demons or, or whatever challenges in our way. So that's a story that um, uh, I'd like to continue to resonate and, and um, I appreciate the, the opportunity to, this is, to do uh, that through forums like this. Yeah, this is such a great story, Mickey. Thank you so much for telling it to us today. Um, I, I honestly was not totally sure what to expect when, when I walked into this interview. <laughs> Um, this morning, because I, I just, I read up on, I, as I said, I wasn't familiar with this story and I, I read up on it a little bit in the studio here before we got started today. But I mean, this has really been a pleasure. I'm so happy that we could have you on. And um, I hope people will really go and check out this book that you wrote. We're looking at it here. Yeah, I'm looking at it here because you, you sent me a, a lot of info. It's possible I passed over it, but I wasn't aware until you just mentioned it that you wrote this book. So my father, the badass, oh, inspiring real yeah, story yeah. of a true hero. I would have had to and send they, us uh, a couple copies. Yeah, go go look this uh-huh. book up on Amazon. Uh, I, this is such an incredible story. Like, this is a great story to even like buy this and give this to a relative. I mean, it's it's really cool. And the uh, the film that Rory did, uh, the one that the one that got uh, nominated for the Oscar last season in Vietnam, is also on uh, on Netflix. So again, oh, wow. in, in that in the in that film, I just share you know the 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 twenty four forty eight hours of, of of that particular mm-hmm. uh, you know dramatic event. The book really covers the, the his childhood days and what kind of a person he was, all the way to to the reunion as well. So it's a, a broader, a broader and de- a deeper uh, storyline. Uh, Netflix uh, on uh, Last Days of Vietnam, written and produced by Rory. That's great. Yeah, so that'll be accessible to a lot of people. And, and then actually, yeah. just uh, as we're wrapping things up, I just kind of want to expand upon what you were saying before. So y- you originally were saying people comparing, you know, what your family went through and everybody else in Vietnam to what's happening in Venezuela. Um, I just wanted to flush that out a little bit, though. Are, are you saying you feel like what's going on in Venezuela is not comparable or, or that it is? Uh, no, no, I, I only bring up the, the, the Venezuela thing is the, you know, the media or people, the general public. Now with information these days, you know, the, the, the notion of that being called upon again uh, is very relevant to to today's times. So um, that, that there's people yeah, out there that, calling for a military intervention and things like that. Yeah, but but at the same time, we don't know what the underlying motive is behind that, right? I, I wrote my book that uh, you know, uh, fighting for God, which is uh, got a gold, oil, and drugs. You know, we we hear stories. That's you know, written fact about CIA moving moving drugs through uh, during the Vietnam War and, and, and uh, taking advantage of that situation. So um, you know, there's, there's more truth behind that, right? Things going on behind that that, that we may not be fully aware of. And so 
uh, Venezuela could be, uh, you know, a part of that sort of, uh, um, I don't know how to say it, uh, same team as well, perhaps. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. I've, I've heard that before, by the way, the, the, uh, the GOD acronym. Yeah. <laughs> there, I, I'm just, uh, yeah, there's things that, uh, yeah. I mean, that, for Venezuela, that, the I, oil, the oil the part is certainly there. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That, yeah. the, the other one that we're agitating with right now, this, this is actually something, an article I've been writing is, uh, Iran, which is another, that would be a, a really a fool's errand for us to go over there and try to instigate something with, um, I hope that doesn't happen. No, no, nobody wants nobody wants that situation. It's kind of interesting because you know someone like yourself and a lot of other authors who have written about so- somewhat similar things seem to share this idea. Um, I remember actually when I was working on Senator Bill Bradley's show, and I think I mentioned this on a recent episode. Um, this guy wrote a book about his dad raising the flag at Iwo Jima and his story. It turns out that his dad was not in the iconic photo they found out years later of them raising the flag at Iwo Jima but he did raise a flag at Iwo Jima and he was not aware of this but the reason I bring this up is that when we had him on Senator Bradley's show the son he was very vehemently anti-war or I should I I I don't even know if I should use the word anti-war but just the idea of going to war without using it as a last resort. And I feel like that's a recurring theme of a lot of people who've experienced what you have, people who've experienced communism or socialism or, you know, any of these things that their family had to escape. Diplomacy is always the best route. I mean, it's just just communicating, talking things out. Diplomacy is is the best route. War is is the absolute last option. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think mo- most of you guys who have been there, you know, agree with that yeah, as well, cer- Jack. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I'm not uh, hungering for war by any means. Just having seen it up close in a number of different countries, uh, it's just the tremendous human costs. Um, and whatever little foreign foreign policy value that you know, our government thinks they're deriving from it, I mean, I, I just don't think it's worth it. And I'm... Uh, uh, you can color me a skeptic about what we can realistically accomplish around the world with regime change and things like that. But which, by the way, is also why they recruit guys at, you know, 17, 18, because <laughs> if you meet someone who's 17 or 18 going in the military, they're like, I want to see action. And I think a true a guy in his mid 20s is, is less likely to have that or sentiment. A guy in their mid 30s that has a family. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's uh, you, you don't. You know, you can read it in a book, you can watch it in a film, watch all these Rambo movies, but it's it's a different thing to experience it firsthand. And uh, even, you know, you, you were only too young. Mickey, well, well, no, I, I, I experienced it. You know, I bombed all over the place, running through the bunkers and jumping out of helicopters. I, I lived it. I, I experienced it. One of the, one of the things I, I wanted to uh, bring up also was, uh, you know, when I mentioned before, like dragging on the war for a, a long time, uh, in doing the research, in the, uh, one of the things that I looked at was uh, when I Googled it, and did other sources around it, but uh, from like, they, they called it uh, from Rolling Thunder. Yeah. And the, the, the premise behind that it, it was that uh, there, the U.S. was basically handcuffed in terms of rules of, uh, rules of engagement, in terms of attacking the enemy. And uh, the, the point here, well, what, what the, some of the things that they were restricted in doing was they, you know, they could not, um, uh, the U.S. could not uh, attack certain parts and 
certain targets. They were handcuffed from, you know, flying at certain time frames, limited to certain things. So basically handcuffed. And if 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 I were, if I had all the wherewithal, if I had all the, the military might, the quickest thing I would want to do is to subdue my enemies as, as soon as possible to just end this thing, right? But some of these some of these crazy rules or things that we, that I researched out here really uh, dragged out the war a lot longer than it, it it had. Hence, giving the the communists the ability to continue to move further down, 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 and uh, stretch this thing out longer than than it. Uh, that it needed to be. That, that was the whole point. I'm just trying to make yeah. the uh, the fact that uh, this this could have this could have ended a lot sooner than, than later, saving a lot more lives than we see today. Yeah, that's something I've heard a lot as well. And I even think the people domestically who glamorize like that the country is almost in a state of civil war and that they they want to see things get worse. I think a lot of, like they the social they, media they crowd. Think they do. Yeah. yeah, and and I think people have truly seen a country in a state of civil war. That's the last thing, and and you know, pe- people maybe like to glamorize the uh, liberals of America going up against the conservatives or the gun owners get, going it's up crazy, against the people want to grab guns. But you know, they they also haven't seen countries where people are starving and there's yeah. food lines or any of that, and and they're the really negative sides of it. So uh, there's people. Yeah. I'm sorry to. I don't want to go off on like a whole tangent, but there there are people in America today who are so politicized and so ideological, and they're so honestly they're just filled with hate in their heart that they think that they're going to have like some sort of civil war in America, and it'll result in this creative destruction, and what will come out of it is like this utopian society. And I, I mean, I've seen essentially what are civil wars in Iraq and Syria, um, a more low level kind of uh, insurgency in the Philippines. Um, and then of course, you know, Mickey, you lived through some of it. I've studied the Vietnam conflict academically because it was of course before my time. And I mean, no, (laughs) that's not what's going to happen. It's just a destruction of society, the destruction of our, of our, our social structures, our institutions, our families. Uh, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. There's nothing to glamorize there at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things I've been researching also is uh, this, this globalist movement. I don't, are you guys are you guys into that? Or are you oh, we talk about this all the time. The thing is, it's such a broad spectrum, though. Are we? Because uh, uh, I feel like the the globalism thing could go very Alex Jones, or it could be very uh, rational. But but like, what what specifically? Well, I, I, yeah, exactly. Right. It's one of those areas where I, I want to be very, I want to thread very <laughs> cautiously, yeah. very cautious because I, I know being called a conspiracy theorist, all that, but you know, I just, uh, the, the one world government, the new world order, the globalist movement, call it whatever you will. It's just, uh, and what we see in terms of, uh, this deep state, you know, the, the, the people that pull the levers the people, the, the Illuminati, call it what you will. The, the things that they're doing to disrupt and, and disrupt different countries uh, so that, you know, divide and conquer, right? You divide the world up into different areas and, and then um, conquer them that way. I, and how does that, ref- I mean, it, when, I, when, I, when I looked at the history that I went through with Vietnam uh, and uh, trying to understand all of that, all of that, how it applies to Vietnam, um, the the notion I mean, the notion of back then uh, when Kennedy initially wanted to uh, 
stop the communist red tide. Uh, the difference between uh, what I've learned here, and, and I'm still trying to uh, look into it some more, but the difference between the U.S. and Vietnam at a very high level, communism versus sort of a democratic, is that the corporations, they, they, they run, they own our government, the U.S. government here. On the flip side of things, the, the Vietnamese government, I've lived there in the when past from uh, 2017-2016, lived there back there for two years, and just experiencing the, the country and living back there again. Um, communism is more of a, uh, the, the government owns the corporations, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the contrast between the two, and above them is the bankers and everybody else that controls globally everything else. So the whole, the, the whole premise around globalist movement, all of that stuff, I'm still learning it. I'm still trying to pull all the pieces together, but uh, um, it's one of those areas that uh, is, I, 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 you know, I, I tread lightly, and, and I don't want to speak beyond what at least I'm, I'm you know, more what I know. So, well, yeah. I mean, one thing I think it just is quite apparent now is that there there is a such thing as a foreign policy elite. I mean, I, I don't really see it as a as a conspiracy, but there is a a uh, ecosystem in Washington, D.C. and and other centers. Um, And they have ideological views about our foreign policy and how it should be constructed. And those views, in many, many instances, don't align with the American public. Um, I think the American public's getting quite frustrated with some of these wars we're running basically all across the world. And there's there's no end in sight. And and so I, I think there's definitely this um, factionalized um, view towards these foreign policy issues. And, and there are people in Washington, D.C. who are just inside a bubble and they don't see what, you know, America's sons and daughters have having to, you know, been running around fighting this war for 17 years now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this has been a great discussion, man. And, and I would definitely love to continue it at some point. We'll definitely check out the book and want the audience to as well. Uh, which, which, which once again is my father, the badass, an inspiring real story of a true hero. Uh, the movie is Last Days in Vietnam, Oscar nominated in 2015. And anything else? I, I don't know if you have a presence on social media. We have a pretty heavy presence that might want to check you out. Uh, well, just my website, MickeyWint.com. A bunch of pictures. I, I mean, uh, sharing the story is one thing, but a picture is worth a thousand words. So I, I encourage you know any audience out there that's just curious about some of these pictures. Uh, pretty dramatic, uh, and I have that on my uh, my website there. Excellent, man. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. We went long here, but it was worth it, and I think this audience is going to love it. And thanks for reaching out again. I'm, I'm really glad we had you on. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity to share this. Absolutely. Thanks, Mickey. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. Have a good day. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Take care. Bye. So I was going to do a uh, throat punch of the week, but you know what? I might save that for next show because I, I just feel like we covered so much here. Uh, and I, I don't even want to end it on that. That was just too good of an interview to, to end it with uh, other nonsense going on in the world, which is really what it is. I mean, this is such a significant story and and such a valuable perspective to have. I mean, we have plenty of guys on the show who are Vietnam veterans, yeah. you know, who were in Mac V. Sog, who did different things, but we've never really had anyone from his perspective. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of the, this story is sort of like the aftermath of the war, you know, and what happened when we pulled out and we left that void there 
And, you know, unfortunately, we left uh, our allies in South Vietnam at the mercy of the communists. Yeah. At the same time, this is also a feel-good story, and I think people will yeah. like it. I mean, the, the fact that everything, uh, basically other than his brother, unfortunately, dying years later, which had nothing to do with this, but um, it, it, it everything went, it couldn't have gone better. Really. Yeah, yeah. So, um, really. Wrapping things up, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. And gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room, Army Ranger Drew Wallace, who you've heard on the show, and all the other guys from Hurricane involved with the Crate Club are putting together great gear, 100% custom products made for us. Uh, I think we're aiming to do 100% custom. Every now and again, we'll have, like I saw, we had a Vertex bag, so... Uh, we're doing cool stuff like that as well. A lot of the smaller stuff is really made in-house now, um, stuff like Brandon's Panthera brand. Um, but, yeah, sunglass cases, EDC bags, other manly products. It's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Um, we're going to be shooting some new stuff, I believe, like a new inside the team room. So if you've been a member looking for new content, I believe that is on the horizon. We also have the News Rep Financial Report. This is the newest thing that we're pushing heavily exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. You are going to want to sign up for this. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise and the News Rep Financial Newsletter Advantage, our team that offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, full access to News Rep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, and access to our team of experts and analysts. No one is really doing this. This is really uncharted territory, so um, it's independent of just signing up for a News Rep membership and it's an exclusive thing that you're going to have access to. So just go to the FinRep tab at the top of the newsrep.com to sign up. That's FinRep right at the top of new, of uh, the newsrep.com. Alex said in a recent episode that we're going to end up, I think, buying the domain for newsrep.com. But that hasn't happened yet. So I'm still saying the newsrep.com. It would be cool. I mean, I think newsrep.com would probably be easier. Yeah. But uh, as of now, it is still the newsrep.com. Um like I said, maybe I'll do a throat punch of the week next week. I had one prepared, but this was just too good of a show. We went pretty long here. Um, send us some emails. We love reading your emails. If you have any questions, comments, softrep.radio at softrep.com. And I guess the last thing I'll say is pre-order Murphy's Law. I posted a picture of your book next to uh, my Metallica 
back to the front book and it got hundreds of likes a lot of comments people excited to check out the audible with you reading it yeah and i did my first piece of media for the book today actually i did a pretty like long like hour hour and a half interview um that's probably going to actually go out they're probably going to run it on youtube um closer to the publication date but we'll figure that out I'll, I'll, i'll i'll let you know when when it goes out and people can check it out if they want awesome man well i think um not because of us but because of mickey this might be an episode that people will think is one of the best you know better episodes we've done because i think I, so. I can't think of uh more interesting story than that i mean that that was really mind-blowing and he did a great job conveying the whole story yeah. from start to finish yeah so. no it's super cool story cool all right well we'll be back uh with a new episode that'll go up on friday as always follow us on twitter and instagram at software radio like the new facebook page facebook.com slash radio and we're out you've been listening to soft rep radio new episodes up every wednesday and friday follow the show on instagram and twitter at soft rep radio